So excited for another edition of Rebellion's educational series. Today we're going to tackle intelligent manufacturing with one of the globe's leading minds, uh, Dr. Lane Mears from Clemson University is commodity. Dr. Mears, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to, to talk about this. Well, first, Tesla. Have you seen the recent market value? What are yeah, your feelings I, there? I love Tesla. I, I love uh, the way Elon Musk thinks, um, the way that all good uh, advancement needs to be thought of as no constraints, no boundaries. Um, that's impossible. Just like when I hear that, that means I'm on the right track, that, uh, that uh, make, making big leaps takes big risks. And, uh, and I'm really excited that he's shaking up the automotive industry. The automotive industry has is, is been the same way for 100 years. And now we're starting to say, wave the, wave the uh, uh, smart manufacturing flag and say, oh, well, you know, we're getting smarter. We're able to connect our machines together and, and have them talk to one another. But the products are, are the products. The, the, the vehicles that we're looking at today are functionally no different than horses pulling carriages down the street in the 1800s. Well, Dr. Mears, let me cut you off because that's, that's what leads me to my question about their market value. Because if they can dominate the market for licensing driverless technology over the next 20 to 30 years, we're talking about just such an immense amount of cash flow on 15 to 12 million you know, units of you know, U.S., and then you're talking about China, and obviously... It's global. It's a yeah. global lever, and They're I love it. not auto company. They are a technology platform that in a few years will be offering it at, what, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 per unit, whether it's a Mercedes or a Volkswagen, you'll want the Tesla driverless package. You'll have no choice. Yeah, yeah. the... the, the um... The technology and and moving the technology forward like that is is uh, the thing that makes the difference. That that's where the valuation comes from, and and the, the fact that uh, that that uh, Elon and and his team have just not worried about the the litigation and not worried about some of the, the constraints and the governmental regulations and that type of thing to to be able just to get out and put this out into the market. That that's where you make the difference. You you prove it. On the road. Do you think other companies will catch up with them with driverless technology eventually? Or other companies are already working on driverless technology. I, I just got a got an Acura vehicle, and it's a it's a nice hybrid. I love I love electric drivetrains. I think that's the future. Um, but it's got uh, warning systems all around it, camera based warning systems. It's got lane keeping. It's got adaptive cruise control. So I've got a driverless car. It won't let me drive it driverless. Um, and this is what other companies are working on. There are companies investing millions of euros, millions of dollars in, in driverless technology, but they're not taking the big leap to allow you to jump in the back seat and go to sleep. All the, all the value behind Tesla that I've heard is that they're going to be 5, 10, 15 years ahead of everyone else. Do you think that's going to play out? Do you think they'll continue to be that far ahead? Completely. Um, this, this happens over and over again in the, in the automotive industry. The, the companies that take the big leaps end up eating it financially in the first few years. And then they are so far ahead because they have so much knowledge in the bank. Uh, you see this when Ford did their F-150, all aluminum F-150 for lightweighting a car and making sure that it uh, had better fuel uh, mileage. 
they took a bath on that and it was a lot of heartache and it was a lot of difficulty, but now they are so far ahead of everybody on multi-material joining and how to form aluminum and that type of thing. BMW did the same thing with their I cars where they wanted to make an electric car. They put a bunch of batteries in a, in a mini and found out it was way too heavy. And they said, okay, we can't make this out of steel anymore. We have to make the whole body out of composites. Nobody had ever done that before. And it was a very difficult process for them, but now they are, they are leading the way and nobody can touch them. But I mean, aren't composites also a lot less safe than steel? Uh, no, not necessarily. The uh, oh. composites used in the right area and designed the right way uh, can actually be safer. They could be more comfortable, uh, definitely can be more lightweight. And now they're, the, the variety of materials available in composites, it is not just carbon fiber and a thermoset plastic. Uh, there, there, are, there are thermoplastic composites. There are composites with natural fibers like bamboo. There are recyclable composites. Uh, and, and safety is, is uh, being addressed. Manufacturability is being addressed. And multi-material joining is now being addressed because that's an issue. So where do you see the future of man and the robot in the workplace? I mean, you know, do you, do you think a company like uh, Campbell's Soup or Post Cereals, do you think they're going down the right track right now with their manufacturing? Okay, so that, those are great examples because let's talk about that. Um, if we use the automobile as, a, as an example of a complex system, the market is pushing that automobile to be more and more varied. When, when Henry Ford built his mass production plant, he was making quite a few cars, but they were really the same thing. It was the same powertrain and we were hanging different types of Model T bodies on top of them. That just doesn't play anymore. Um, the BMW factory that uh, is near Clemson University, which is the only BMW factory in the US, um, they can make over 2 million different cars, different car variants with all the options that can be placed on there. And, and how do you do that? It's very different than making a can of soup. And it's very different than making a box of cereal because there you've got automated systems that do that very well. In the assembly hall where you have to be making thousands of decisions on every vehicle, uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> We're not there where you have a sea of robots in the, in the assembly hall, like you do in the body shop welding bodies together, or like you do in the paint shop painting cars. So what industry do you see getting hit the most by robotic automation in the next five to 10 years that no one's talking about? Um, I think the big industry, and I don't want to say a specific industry, but a specific type of uh, process is assembly processes, processes where multiple parts are coming together and being clicked together in different ways and being designed in different ways. If we try and do that with robots today, it doesn't make sense. We've got like, uh, like feeding wires through uh, components and snapping things together with fingers, these soft kind of compliant systems. Robots don't handle those well, though there are a number of people that are working on that. Um, we may need to look at how robots and intelligence systems can be designed together with new products that are more amenable to automatic assembly, and we might start to see some, some movement there. But in the meantime, with current designs, we need to look at how automation and people are going to work together, and that's an area that I'm very passionate about. So what do you think needs to change? The way that automation is designed today is moving very quickly. 
it's moving down a path of robots that look like human arms, for instance, and you know, all robots tend to look the same. And it's moving down a path of connected robotics, connected automation systems, software systems that are becoming more and more uh, able to exchange data and generate information. And people are kind of, where do I plug in? Where do the people plug in to that? That's what I'm, that's what I'm interested in. I think if we keep going down this path and we sort of extrapolate it out to an end state, now you're going to introduce artificial intelligence. And by that, I mean, not just uh, machine learning and pattern matching and classification. I mean, real artificial intelligence, machines that can think for themselves. You're going to get out to that end. What's the role of the person? What is the person going to end up doing? I think that's the, that's the big investment that needs to happen right now. And that's how industry is going to change. When we start to realize that people and advanced automation and artificial intelligence systems need to be better blended to one another, and not just here's the here's the artificial intelligence system person adapt yourself so that you can come work with me. These are going to be teams, and they're going to, the lines between them are going to blur a lot more than they are today. So, will the BMW factory of the future have many fewer people, just a few you know uh, engineers with advanced degrees checking on uh, you know the upkeep of the systems, and then various IT people making sure that the power and the storage works. Well, I won't comment on, on specific manufacturers, but I would just say, yeah, the factory of the the factory of the future. I don't see it as a big sea of of robots uh, putting things together. I see I see people that are doing more than just screwing uh, screws and brackets into into cars. We're going to have the element of precision and repeatability of automation, that's going to get there. And that's what the automation is going to do. The automation is going to do what the automation is good at. People are going to do what people are good at. What can people do that no other creature or artificial system can do? What do you think? Uh, Let me uh, ask you a question. Honestly, I, I was thinking, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, what are people good at? You know, uh, people are good at uh, sensing emotions in other people. Okay, emotion. That's a that's an excellent way to look at it. Um, people are emotional beings, and by de- designing these uh, uh, automation systems and going down this automation path, we're asking these emotional, non-stationary, variable beings to come over here and be deterministic, like like my machine. You see this, and it's been happening for a long time. You see this in things like foolproofing, right? I'm foolproofing something, meaning I'm making it so that the human doesn't mess it up. And I'm calling the human a fool. I'm saying, you're, you're a fool, and I'm going to make you better by making the system so you can't mess you're it up. You're talking about one of my favorite um, subjects, which is actually uh, about 737 MAX uh, accidents, where you have technology and you know, uh, smart machines, be them 737 MAXs, that mm-hmm. are beyond the capabilities of those dealing with them. And by the way, Yes, the MCAS system failed because one of the you know uh, systems that brought in data brought in faulty data, and we all know any model fails when half, any data is faulty, let alone half of your data. That's right. So, so the MCAS had faulty data; it failed. Right. But any pilot worth their wings would have just turned off 
the autopilot and flown the bird, as they say. And I hate mm-hmm. to quote like a pilot flown the bird, but I interviewed so many pilots for the eight pieces I wrote on the 737 Max that mm-hmm. maybe you know, I, I really have to say, you know, flying a bird is a very easy thing. If you're a pilot, you just fly it. It's something you've been doing all of your life, you know. But when you've got pilots, I mean, you saw with Air Pakistan, half of the pilots didn't even actually have the correct uh, certification. So this 737 is an excellent example of a couple of things. It's an excellent example of technology that got too far out in front of human capability without being considered as being designed so that humans could could uh, be involved with that and be harmonious with that. And it's also an example of um, ostensible artificial intelligence saying we got this really smart system that can fly the plane by itself. But my gosh, I bring in bad data. I, as a human, can look at that. I know that, that something's wrong. If I'm telling the plane to go you know, down, that's not an that's not an artificial intelligence system. There's no intelligence there if it's going the wrong way and there's nothing there to for it to recognize that it's going the wrong way. And this brings me to the answer to my question. People are really good at envisioning something that does not yet exist. So if I can extrapolate out, ah, if I push this stick down, I know as a person, I'm bringing the plane down to the ground, and I know that that's a bad thing. I know that bad consequences can happen with that. But if I design an artificial intelligence system, and it doesn't have that ability to, to look out and to see broader impacts of the things, the decisions that it's being asked to make, and it can't bring in all of the information that it's been taught, then it's not an artificial intelligence system. And this is another one of my bees in my bonnet that artificial intelligence is sort of a misnomer in the way that it's applied today. But I don't think it's gonna be applied that way forever. I think we are gonna see some real artificial intelligence systems and they're gonna change the landscape. Yeah, no, I, I have to remind, uh, at, when I give a guest lecture, I, I've gotta remind the audience that in fact, the simplest, most common form of artificial intelligence, according to the definition of it, is that of a washing machine, you know, just the intelligent set of commands and following it. And so a washing machine right. is the, you know, most, uh, so it, it's, but that's it's not the most basic, basic artificial intelligence system because it's following a, a set of commands and it's carrying that out and it's doing it to the best of its ability, but it's not smart enough. Not strong AI. Yeah. Something's no. wrong. Yeah. And I got, no, and I yeah, got the, the best memes, are, my favorite AI memes are the ones, you know, say, Oh, in 19, in 1950, we assume that in 70 years we'll have smart AI, you know, um, you know, that can do lots of stuff. And, oh, and, and, and 70 years later, the AI can do lots of stuff, but it's dumb as heck, you know? <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It's uh, like my dad used to say, he, he would be working on his TRS-80 model one, which is where I came up. Damn computers. They only do what you tell them. And I, ha ha ha, that's funny, but you look at artificial intelligence today and that's exactly right. We have these great classification systems, these great machine learning systems. They're taking multi, multi-dimensional data sets and looking at patterns and finding things that humans could never find, but they're only as good as what they've been trained on doing. They exactly. aren't able to sort of think ahead. They can't, they can't compose new music and write new books and design new things and, and come up with markets that don't exist. Do you think Turing would have cried if he saw TRS-80? <laughs> I think he would have. Yeah. I I, yeah. yeah. Um, um, th- there were, there were some of the early, uh, uh, some of the early 
uh, forays into artificial intelligence. There was an ELISA program that I believe came out of MIT that was uh, that was like a Turing test. It was it was a, a, a conversational type of program, but it was really just taking inputs and twisting them around and feeding them back to the to the user. So it wasn't uh, a true artificial intelligence. But I think that's what we're going to see now is is a lot of data input because that's what we are as people, right? I don't know anything inherently. I have to experiment and sort of find out, oh, you know, that hurts when I do that. So, so I'm not going to do that in the future, or I'm going to, I'm going to see, it, this is a, a, a Bayesian network. So I'm going to see something that conflicts with my beliefs and I can't argue with the thing I see. So I have to change my belief system and that's how we develop our, our belief systems. Yeah. I love Bayesian but, networks. They're so useful. It, it's how people think and it's how people learn and it's how like my kids, right? You look at that same thing and they ask me questions that are so off the wall and I'm like, that's a Bayesian update that just happened right there when we answer that. Uh, fantastic. Well, this was a, a really awesome uh, episode. Thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Got a time already. I got, uh, I got tons more stuff that we can talk oh about. Yeah, no, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly it, uh, so before we finish, I really want to get your view on society as a whole, future of really just expand and, and, and tell us what you feel. Yeah, well, think about this. When we, if we look back on society, we look toward, these, uh, uh, toward the, the hunter-gatherer society, became this agrarian society that lasted about 500 years, and then people started to get together in cities, and that gave rise to to belief systems like governments and taxes and uh, and then as, as as people were were gathering and getting in in bigger and bigger conglomerates, the specialization of people got got more and more. And now we jumped in with computers. Now we're jumping in with artificial intelligence. The timelines of each of these are are shrinking down, and the specialization a hunter gatherer had to know everything, and now a computer specialist has to know a slice. Let's extrapolate that out, and this is happening very quickly. What happens when that time gets to zero? What happens to that level of intelligence gets to nothing? That's happening. That's going to happen during your and my lifetime, and I'm really worried about uh, about where that's going. Um, and I think artificial intelligence is a is a way to to sort of get us out of that to get us out of that cycle. Um, but it's going to be a really interesting uh, uh, journey, and it's a very, very interesting time what, to what be worries, applying that in manufacturing. Hmm? What worries you specifically? What worries you? We're moving too fast. So just like the 737 MAX, our, our technology got out in front of us where the human couldn't keep up with it. That's just going to that's just going to uh, embody itself in more and more different ways. So I'm looking at it in, in standpoint of manufacturing, but even societally, uh, we're we're going to see technology uh, just just keep on taking off. It's fun to explore these technologies. It's fun to research them and push the boundaries of these things. Um, but but it's a it leaves an interesting question: is is these things are happening faster and faster? I heard knowledge doubled in the last. In, in the 50 years, the uh, last 50 years of the 20th century, and then it doubled again in the next five years after that. <laughs> this is just happening quicker and quicker. It's not linear, it's exponential, uh, and it does have implications in manufacturing, and I think it's going to have implications in broader society. Um, well, fantastic. This, Sorry to blow your mind if that's... Uh... <laughs> no, no, I... Uh, no, I, I, I doing it. So, uh, this, was, this was great. Uh, Dr. Mears, uh, Please stay safe and be well yep. and 
uh, I hope to be able to speak with you again. This was yeah. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it was a pleasure to be on here. I really love exploring these uh, these types of topics. You are absolutely super brilliant, and it was a uh, pleasure was all of ours. So thank you. You also.